This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Few stories in the Bible are as important to understanding the rest of Scripture as the Exodus. In his significant new book, Echoes of Exodus, Tracing a Biblical Motif, published by University Press in 2018, Brian Estelle, professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, describes the Exodus as a mega-narrative in Scripture and traces it through three parts of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and through the Gospels and Acts and Paul and First Peter and even the Revelation in the New Testament. Brian has taught at Westminster Seminary, California since 2000. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, author of another book, and of numerous journal essays and chapters. Echoes of Exodus is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Brian, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for the invitation and privilege of being here. Every book has a backstory, and this one must. What is it that animated you to take on this large project? This thing that I have in my hands, your new book, is 351 pages of text, reflecting a lot of research over a long period of time, evidently. Yeah, good question. Uh, Well, when you hired me back in 2000, uh, (laughs) together with the rest of the faculty, I was told to work up an elective, and this subject had always fascinated me. So I just started from scratch, and then it grew and grew and grew. And the more research I started doing, the more I found that there was a lot of secondary literature, but it was all disparate and unconnected. No one had tried to tie the whole story together, and so that's what I tried to do So it grew out of teaching, really, and interaction with students and colleagues and others. Okay, that makes sense. I could kind of see that. In fact, as I was reading it, I was sort of hearing your voice and imagining you in front of class. So you've had input from students on this over the years, and you commented on that in your preface. True, true. In fact, even in some of the footnotes, I cite some of my students, some published papers. I thought they had good insights. I say I came to this conclusion because of a provocative question. You're probably aware Alan Bloom said the great triangle is research, writing, and teaching. And so that triangle is very helpful. Who would want to mess that up with administration? So uh, (laughs) I try and keep those three sides equally balanced. You spend about 100 pages in the beginning of the book explaining your method and your vocabulary, and you use a number of interesting terms, some of which may be familiar to the listener, but some of which may not. And we're expecting the listener to go out and get a copy of this book and read it. And so in order to be able to sit down and read this book, the listener needs to know some of these key terms and what you mean by them. And maybe the most important term that you use in this book that sounds like jargon, it might but it isn't really, is this term intertextuality, intertextuality. And it's so important that you devote a 31-page appendix to it, just in case the reader doesn't quite get it at the beginning of the book, you come back at the end and say, here's how this has been discussed, and this is why I'm saying what I'm saying and what I'm doing what I'm doing. What do you mean by that, and why is it so important? Uh, Good question. All my questions are good questions. No, this is a great question. (laughs) Uh, So I began in the draft 
um, this is something one of my professors, Michael Patrick O'Connor, drilled in my head was whenever you're working on a large project, you need to have the theory up front and then demonstrate your evidence and the data later on that you're collecting and showing the reader coheres with the theory up front. So the appendix was actually originally part of the opening chapter. And my editor, who had been at this about 40 years, Dan Reed, said, Brian, you can't have that much <laughs> theory up front. We want him to read the whole book. Yeah. And so he said, you got to shove some of this back in the appendix, which I did. Intertextuality is somewhat a new term, buzz term. It's quite hotly disputed what it should mean, what it does mean, and that kind of thing. I try and bridge a gap between what's called synchronic and diachronic intertextuality. So through time, study through time. and That would be diachronic. That's right. And synchronic, taking a slice and looking at something somewhat apart from diachronic concerns. And synchronic would be looking at the usage in a particular slice of time. Exactly. So one is a line, that's diachronic, and one you might think of as a pie, and that's synchronic. And they have different consequences, right? Diachronic tends to lead you in one direction, synchronic tends to lead you in another. At least that's what you seem to suggest. That's exactly right. So there's a little bit of a wrestling match going on in the academy about who gets to own this term. And so I'm actually trying to address both schools, speaking in generalities, if you will, and even be so bold as to provide a way forward. Since there's a dissatisfaction with source-critical methodology today in biblical studies, that would be people who are looking for editors and redactors who sewed all this material, as opposed to a kind of traditional, more conservative approach with examining a book, assuming that there's an author or narrator or a number of authors, but nevertheless sewn together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to provide a coherent whole. The dominant view up until recent times has been to assume there's various redactors or critics, editors that are sewing a book together together to present a coherent whole at some time in history. But that is beginning to show signs of waning. So new methodologies are arising. So this particular methodology is one that assumes that authors and narrators are talking to each other in the Bible, somewhat analogous to what Reformed people and conservative biblical scholars have called analogia fide, that Scripture interprets Scripture. But here, the assumption is that all subsequent authors are under the influence of preceding authors or narrators, and therefore they intentionally make echoes, or they intentionally allude to, since they're under the influence of earlier authors, they allude to earlier material. So this is very important for gaining a thicker or more robust understanding of a text. Every text has intra-textual coherence, so we could take a little paragraph out of Romans and understand it, but we would understand it much more fully if we also understood what Paul was doing in reference to the whole body of literature that preceded him and that may stretch all the way back to Genesis or Deuteronomy or the Psalms. And so my effort in this book is to both set forth the theory and description of the theory of intertextuality, but then also to demonstrate for the reader how to do this or how to observe it being done in a responsible manner. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And we're talking with Professor Brian Estelle about his new book, Echoes of Exodus. Some of the other terms that are related that you've already used in explaining intertextuality might be allusions, evocation, echoes, 
motif, and even metalepsis. What do you mean by an illusion? How does a reader know that he or she is seeing an illusion of the Exodus in another part of Scripture? Yeah, great question. Let me uh, answer that in the way I developed it and then brought up a fourfold category to help calibrate how an illusion is working. Now, of course, this is of interest not only to biblical readers, it's also of interest to anybody who engages literature, because all literature comes under the influence of other literature and other ideas, unless you have a genius like Shakespeare, who is saying a lot of his own thing, perhaps sometimes irrespective of what's gone before him, although Though, as you know, Shakespeare constantly alludes to other sources, especially classical sources. But as I was banging this theory out and thinking about it, and there's a lot of debate, nuanced debate, by and large, people agree on these categories. I came up with a fourfold criteria to calibrate how an illusion is working or how an echo is working. So on the one hand, and this should be familiar to any lay reader who examines the scriptures, you can have direct citation where a citation from a previous scripture passage or book is referred to, and that's introduced by a formula. For example, constantly in the Gospels, as it is written, that kind of thing. And then a subtle citation was a category where you have a citation of a passage, which may be strict or a little bit loose as far as a paraphrase, and there's no introductory formula. And then as you move further along this spectrum, an illusion is something that we notice as a clear reference to a preceding text or even a contemporary text from another author, which could be argued in Scripture. But there's no introductory formula. It's not exactly a citation. It could be one word. It could be two words. But the thing with an illusion, I'm convinced and argued in the book, is that it's something that's intended by the original author or narrator. In other words, he's putting a little cue in there. If I said, you know, I'll not be made jealous by your dropping of a handkerchief. Well, some readers may get that. Some may not, depending on whether they know Shakespeare's Othello. And if they've seen it or they've read it and they're familiar with the plot line, then they'll immediately recognize it. If they're not, then you could help a reader along by saying, as in Shakespeare's play Othello, and then they would get the illusion, perhaps even have a thicker understanding in the intratextual, not intertextual. In other words, by that intertextual illusion, now the intratextual, the text that Shakespeare's producing and generating actually has a thicker, more robust meaning because of its influence by the previous text. And then lastly, echo. Echo is something that's much more subtle. We can't necessarily prove that the original author intended that the illusion be recognized, but nevertheless, we, reading from our horizon, our cultural horizon, our own time and that kind of thing, recognize that it's very, very possible that there's an echo here of an earlier text. So that requires more energy, if you will, more interpretive energy on the part of a reader to demonstrate and prove that we're not just being fanciful and imaginative, that there really is an echo there. And frankly, I'm convinced that some biblical authors may even say things they themselves don't fully understand, and that may generate further echoes down the road when somebody else picks up what they're saying. Now, of course, Scripture, it's written by two authors, the 
human author and the divine author. The divine author never makes mistakes. Therefore, he could instantiate a meaning later in history that the original author didn't necessarily, quote unquote, intend. But nevertheless, it was intended by the Holy Spirit who's inspired the scriptures to be used in such a fashion. So four categories to summarize, a uh, literal or explicit citation, a subtle citation without the formula, an allusion, and then lastly, an echo. This is important because, A, it helps us understand Scripture. B, as you say, there are two authors. So you're working with a kind of canonical hermeneutic, reading a text and then looking for allusions to the Exodus story or the Exodus motif as it reappears elsewhere in Scripture. But you're also trying to recognize that the Holy Spirit is, as you said, bringing this about where the human author might not even be entirely conscious of what's happening. Exactly. And so even this technical term that you mentioned on the last question, metalepsis, or sometimes overlapping with another literary term, get ready, this one's a big one, transumption. Say that again one more time. Transumption. Transumption. And so what's noticed here is, let's say a later author, we'll just say New Testament author, but it could be an Old Testament author referring to another Old Testament author, anywhere in the canon where you have precedent, evokes or alludes to or echoes a much earlier author. But by doing that, they're basically invoking not just the word or phrase, they're invoking perhaps a whole book or a whole chapter of Isaiah or the whole storyline of the Exodus. And now the reader, by having a more robust, appreciative approach of what's being evoked, should have a fuller understanding. It's not that there's no truth communicated by just understanding, say, a New Testament phrase or evocation apart from the Old Testament, but the more one reads... And the more one's aware of what's being evoked by the whole story or the whole chapter being alluded to, that's metalepsis. It's a phrase Richard Hayes used. He's big name in New Testament intertextuality studies. We have our differences. I talk about those in the book. As you mentioned, in my view, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the preceding text in such a way that it puts theological and literary pressure on the latter text. It's not as if the latter author is merely looking back retrospectively and suddenly changes the text or adds meaning, a fullness and significance of the meaning comes to bear because of this greater evocation of a greater context, not just the immediate context, but the preceding context. When we come back, I would like to hear you respond to some possible criticisms of this that I can imagine from folks who read scripture rather differently. We'll do that right after this. You believe, but how did you come to faith? Did God elect you because he saw that you would believe? Did Christ die to make salvation available to those who do their part? Can a true believer fall away and be lost? These are just some of the questions that the Reformed churches from across Europe and the British Isles gathered to resolve at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619. This year is the 400th anniversary of that synod, and we want you to join us on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, for our annual conference, Friday and Saturday, January 18th and 19th, 2019. Remembering the Canons. That's January 18 and 19, 2019. The conference features talks by W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, Charles Telfer, and your host, R. Scott Clark. Register now by calling toll-free 888-480-8474. 888-480-8474. 
or online at wscal.edu, wscal.edu. Remembering the Canons in beautiful Escondido, California, January 18 and 19, 2019, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss out. Register now. wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Brian Estelle about his new book, Echoes of Exodus. And right now we're talking about how do we read Scripture. And there are people who argue that Scripture is such, or we should read Scripture in a rather different way. And I might say that they want to flatten out the way Scripture works and the way Scripture is interpreted. And they're worried about finding connections the way that you're doing will plunge us into subjectivism. To avoid that, they want to follow a method that was very popular at the turn of the 20th century, particularly among critics of Scripture. And they would perhaps say that what you're doing borders on allegorizing, and you address that directly in the book. So tell us why what you're doing is not allegorizing and why what you're doing is correct. You keep using this word, a thick reading of Scripture. Help us relate those two things. Yeah, um, another great question, Scott. (laughs) I'm batting a thousand. Let me insert one more thing to finish the thought from the previous question, if I may. Sure. We left undone talking about this word, transumption or metalepsis, what happens? I don't want the conversation to get overly technical, but this is a really important point that actually spills over into this question. And that's that we have an ethical obligation not only to read and strive to be sensitive to the intention of the original author and narrator insofar as that can be discerned, but also into the intention that we discern the Holy Spirit and God intended for us to read from the text. Well, where do we get our cue for that? We get our cue for that from exactly what's embedded in Scripture, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, that kind of thing. So there are markers in the text itself. So this isn't just Brian with a theory and then, you know, sort of powering up that theory and driving it through Scripture. This is something that's arising out of the text of Scripture itself that you've seen in reading Scripture. Exactly. Let me give you an example. So I use this in the book. I think it's buried back in the appendix. But when Paul, in a very important passage in Romans 10, is talking about justification, and he's talking about the law-gospel distinction, and he's noting two— just, I just wanted to note that for the listener. Paul distinguished between law and gospel. Carry on. And he's uh, discussing that the law is not a faith. That's from Galatians, but he's also discussing that in Romans. What he does is he refers to two important texts in Romans 10, both from the Pentateuch. So in his mind, we might suggest both from Moses. One, Leviticus 18.5, the one who does these things shall live by them. And then the other one, interestingly enough, so there's the law side, the gospel side from Deuteronomy. 30. Now, when you go back and you look at Deuteronomy 30 in its original context, it talks about, well, you can't do this. God, verse 6, is going to circumcise your heart. So, circumcise your heart, O Israel. Well, you can't circumcise your heart. Who's going to do that? The agent in verse 6 is God himself is going to circumcise your heart. But here's the point. As you move through Deuteronomy 30, those great, very familiar questions, if you just look at Romans 10, who will ascend up into the heavens and who will go down in order to accomplish this thing? Which in my view, is essentially the ability to do these things, not just wisdom, 
But who is going to do this? Well, Paul interprets that Christocentrically. In other words, he actually, quote unquote, I'm doing scare quotes, my fingers, imagine your mind. <laughs> I could testify. I saw it with my own eyes. <laughs> He's changing the text. Now, what he does is he adds something to the text and he subtracts something from the text. Paul's probably quoting the best form of the Septuagint. And when you look at that, he drops the verb to do three times. So he's subtracting something from the original text. He's not being high-handed. He's not rewriting Moses, but he is doing something with Moses here. And then he adds something to the text. Well, what does come down mean, according to Paul, when Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy? Well, ultimately, that means Christ's incarnation. Well, what does go up mean? Well, ultimately, Paul thinks that means Christ's resurrection. And that's what he tells you specifically, explicitly in Romans 10. That's intertextuality. That's a perturbing or a transumption of the original text, not to be high-handed, but inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring out its fullness of meaning so that we can see the gospel was communicated in Moses, the law was communicated in Moses. Now, if you understand all that and have a teacher to lead you through that and show that to you, you're going to have a fuller understanding of how the Old Testament was preaching law and gospel long before Paul. And then Paul is just recertifying that. Now, with regards to subjectivism, if you take those four categories that I earlier set out, the listener will remember direct citation, introduced by formula, subtle citation, no formula, but citation, allusion, and echo. There are different degrees of expectation that are incumbent upon the reader of the scripture to make sure that one does not fall into subjectivism. Francis Bacon has this great line, goes something like, the human imagination does not need wings to lift it up. It needs weights to bring it back down to the ground. Something like that. My apologies, Mr. Bacon, if I butchered his quote, but that was just an echo. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or an illusion. Yeah. Or an illusion. But you get his point. Well, as Calvin said, our minds are like factories of idol making. So we constantly have to pay attention that we don't get off into allegory. In other words, completely disregarding the original author's or narrator's intent. Allegory means this stands for this. Jesus stood in a boat, and the reason he stood in the boat was he wanted to symbolize the church, and the boat stands for the church. And you've taken a historical narrative and reduced it to symbols and disconnected it. Right. Whereas what happened at the Reformation is certain authors and reformers, I mentioned Calvin in particular, eschewed the whole notion of allegory, at least insofar as Origen did it, whether he read Origen directly or through secondary sources, we don't know for sure. But nevertheless, he constantly brings up Origen as the bad example, namely of allegory. But what Calvin does is brilliant. Instead of disregarding the spiritual sense, he wants to repristinate the historical sense of the original horizon insofar as one can reproduce that and then wed the spiritual sense to that. So the fact of the matter is he firmly, like other reformers, believes there's one sense to the text. One census literalis is the technical term, okay? One literal sense. But that can have multiple reference, multiple landing points, according to how the Holy Spirit uses it. So when he says literal sense, it's a rich thing. It's not a thin thing. It's kind of like a sandwich. There's stuff in there that you have to unpack. Exactly. 
And interestingly enough, this may come as quite a shocking reality to some of the listeners, but he went back to Quintilian, who was a Roman rhetorician. So I was informed one of the first chairs of rhetoric and literature. He was appointed by the Emperor Vespasian. And then he found Quintilian was basically teaching this in his rhetoric that you can have one census lateralis, but with multiple reference points. And Calvin took that and said, well, aha, it fits exactly what the divine and human author are doing in scripture, the divine author especially. And so, nevertheless, he wanted to give a more robust engagement for the historical grounding and the historical sense of text. And so, insofar as that can be determined, sometimes we don't know. We don't know if the date of Joel was 800 or 300. Good arguments can be made anywhere along those spectrum. And Calvin will say, well, it doesn't really matter, but when we turn to that classic passage about the democratization of the Spirit, and it talks about the day of the Lord when the Spirit is pulled out, that day of the Lord not only refers to Joel's day. It also refers to the coming of Christ. It also refers to the crucifixion. It also refers to Pentecost. And it also refers to the end of time. And how do you know that? Well, because you start marching through the scriptures and you see direct citations, subtle citations, allusions, and echoes to prove that that's the case. In other words, the canon is our criteria to keep our imaginations from flying off the ground and bring it back down to the ground, so to speak. Now, we need to bring this interview back down to the <laughs> ground and keep it from flying away because we haven't even actually gotten to the Exodus itself. We want to stimulate the listener to go out and get a copy of this book. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Professor Brian Estelle about his new book, Echoes of Exodus. And so, listener, you need to know that we have just barely scratched the surface. We've really just been discussing the first 100, 120, 30 pages of this book. And this book is about how the Exodus Act itself and the theme of the Exodus functions in Scripture. And you argue that the Exodus event is the fulcrum for the book of Exodus, and that's important for the way it functions in the rest of Scripture. What do you mean by that? Well, when you begin to look at the book of Exodus itself, Exodus 15, of course, the Song of the Sea, Exodus 14 and 15, where they celebrate the victory over Pharaoh and his minions and being delivered safe out on the other side, becomes a center point, high point of the book. Perhaps this is a good place to mention what I argue and what I began to see more and more the further I got into the research on this book is the Exodus is the paradigmatic meaning prime example, the template for how Old Testament Jews thought about salvation. So for Say that, that again, that's really, really important. So Walter Brueggemann, for example, calls it a kind of Exodus grammar that's developed. So if you were talking to a Jew in his own context, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, and they were talking about, well, how are you saved? How are you delivered? Their minds would immediately go back to the great salvific event where they were delivered out from underneath the tyranny of Pharaoh and that blasting iron furnace, so to speak, of Egypt when they were so oppressed. Now, the Exodus refers not merely to that event. The Exodus refers to that as well as deliverance through the sea, which represents later in Scripture, chaos. 
So you always have to have a leader to lead through the symbol of chaos, namely the water, the deep. Why? In order, as the scriptures say in Exodus, in order to worship God at the place he is to be worshiped, which in this example was Sinai. So they wander through the wilderness, they get to Sinai. Sinai is a symbol of God's presence. That's where he is in special manifestation. But the Exodus isn't over yet. When you look at subsequent writers in scripture and you ask the question, and I'm thankful for students prodding me onto this. For subsequent writers in Scripture, the Exodus now becomes wilderness wanderings up to the cusp of the promised land and then conquering the promised land. So it becomes a bigger thing, not just the delivery out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground, but it begins to include more than that, the things that come after that. That's right. And I think another insight I came to through wrestling with this is that this is, sorry for using these literary terms with which you may not be familiar, but they're important and they capture a concept quickly. This is synecdoche. In other words, the part for the whole is a literary term that applies here. So that when we're talking about the Exodus, and now we just span through several books to talk about the Exodus of the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible, even into Joshua, we're talking about a picture. We're talking about the salvation event, the salvation complex, if you will, in microcosmic form or in in smaller form. That's why it's synecdoche for the whole, the part for the whole. So when we look at the Exodus, and even if we isolate the Hebrew Bible, which by the way is 77% of the canon, even if we isolate the Hebrew Bible, that becomes the paradigm for salvation for the Jews. Now, an important caveat, that's without making this the center or the everything, if you will, of what the Bible has to say about salvation. I'm not doing that. I'm not making this a central dogma, a central teaching merely. It is a very important teaching. And you do say that it really is shaping for the way we understand salvation. Can you explain that a little bit since we're there? So then when we get to understanding salvation, we see that God himself— and this is an important point that doesn't come out the end of the book. See, I'm pushing towards the end of the interview. Uh, <laughs> is the history of salvation, interestingly enough, does teach the order of salvation. Say that again. There's a connection between the history of salvation and the order of salvation, which is the application of salvation by the Spirit. That's right. So these two things or different methodologies of approaching the Scripture are not against each other. They rather are mutually supportive and mutually cohering, if you will. So what we see is that the history of salvation teaches us about salvation and the order of salvation. So we have been freed from a tyrant, namely Satan, not just Pharaoh, but more importantly, Satan as we march along in redemptive history. And that in and of itself is not merely a relational act. That is a legal forensic act as well as a relational act. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And that's a relationship that you get into in the book as well. So it's a rich book because sometimes people want to say, well, salvation is legal. And some people want to say, no, it's relational. And you want to say it's both and. That's right. Because think about this. God is the king. I think it's like 14 times king is mentioned in the book of Exodus up until you get to Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea. All 14 times it refers to Pharaoh. 
And then I think, if I remember correctly, the 15th time is in the Song of the Sea, and guess who that name, King, is applied to? The one true God. So the point here is, God is the true king. And when a king releases subjects or captures subjects, liberates subjects, he expects his due. That's legal language. It's relational language, but it's also legal language. And so back to looking at this event as a picture of salvation as a whole— Not only has God freed us, how do you define Christian liberty? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't say it's just our privilege to enjoy certain things of creation. The essence of Christian liberty is being delivered from a tyrant, namely Satan, being liberated from sin, which puts its yoke bondage on us. But now we are free to serve our king, even as the Israelites were free to serve him in the land of promise. It's being in union and communion with God himself. So the Israelites were brought into God's presence at Sinai, and then they're brought into God's presence ultimately in the land. But also it's entitlement to heaven. That is, just as the Israelites, as they obeyed their Lord and suzerain, and they were to conquer the enemies of God, and then they were, quote unquote, entitled not in and of themselves, but as an act of grace and gift. But nevertheless, as they were entitled to the land of Canaan, well, according to the New Testament, that gets ramped up in its own figurative sense to have implications for what we're entitled to. Namely, a greater Joshua, Jesus himself, brings us into the land of the world to come. Now, why is this all important? There's very few conservative and reformed people talking in these kind of categories. There's a lot of people outside conservative reform circles that are talking in these kind of categories. For example, the new perspective on Paul and N.T. Wright. Well, why should we give up all these great biblical narrative insights to people who arguably may not have a biblical view of the Order of Salutis or of uh, the salvation event or maybe have watered it down? So that was also a motivation for the book is getting into it and brilliant insights. I'm not trying to say everything they said was not worthwhile, quite the contrary. But we will construe evidence according to our categories. And sometimes I found that I wasn't satisfied with the way they were construing the biblical evidence. In the Exodus, the basic story, here you have God's people huddled against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies coming down at them, and it's the end. It's hopeless. And God sovereignly, graciously, powerfully, through his covenant mediator, Moses, delivers those people through this judgment water that's death to them into a land of promise eventually, and blessing. And he does it not because they're good, not because they've done anything, not because they've merited anything, but merely out of his unconditional favor, unconditional to them, earned for them by a mediator yet to come. Exactly right. So what happens is as you progress through redemptive history, namely the Bible, and these different parts of Scripture, I had to be selective, of course. Well, he says selective, and that's true, but you go through the Psalms, through Isaiah, through the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, First Peter, and the Revelation. So you take us through a lot of Scripture in one book. Yeah, and some post-exilic material to show yeah. the changes, too. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Nehemiah and Ezra. And what you find is Isaiah is also a fulcrum, if I may use that word again, because he takes the Exodus material and 
and now he construes under the inspiration of the Spirit an Isianic new exodus. In other words, don't look at the former things, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 43, look to the new things to come, okay? And he's speaking ahead of time to the exiles, I would say. And so he's trying to use the exodus to console them again, to reinvigorate their faith, to encourage them. I'm going to do a new thing. Now it's not going to be through the Red Sea. It's going to be through the desert. But hello, there's a fullness of meaning here as well. It's not merely exhausted in Isaiah's day. It's not merely exhausted in the post-exilic community. There's a constant freighting of tension, if you will. There's an arc of tension, as one Old Testament scholar calls it, that's looking forward. So you're constantly being pushed, pushed, pushed forward. Well, then we come to the New Testament, and lo and behold, the Gospels himself, at least a couple Gospels, the whole books are framed and shaped according to the Exodus event. For example, the Gospel of Mark is is structured by the Exodus. Yes. So, if, in other words, if you're not alert to this or aware of this or paying attention to this, you might miss a really important way of understanding how the book of Mark is organized. Exactly. So, now Jesus comes on the scene and Suddenly, the New Testament authors are seeing, because the Old Testament material is applying theological pressure ahead of time, and now they're seeing, by virtue of their eyes being opened by the Spirit, that, oh, so this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's new exodus. This is the promises that are coming into their own. There is, and this, what's very interesting is uh, all this is alive and well at Qumran, out in the desert. So they are expecting a new Moses. They are expecting the time of silence, 400 years of silence, to end in the wilderness. Whereas the wilderness as a theme or motif in and of itself was primarily negative before. This is a time where Israel failed time and time and time again. Now it's expected that this is going to be a time when new revelation is going to come. Well, who is the new revelation? Jesus steps on the scene, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to accomplish two purposes, like Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, in order to redeem us from our sins a tyrant of the tyranny of sin and the tyrant namely Satan, and also to adopt us as sons. Perhaps one of the most terse expressions of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. Well, who does that according to the gospel writers? Jesus Christ does that. He is the greater Moses. He is bringing about a greater exodus that completely outstrips the former exodus with regards to what it foretold, and Jesus is bringing that about. And he brings that about ultimately in his death in Jerusalem. So when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear to him, there we know in Luke chapter 9 that he was talking with them, not merely about his own departure, about his own exodus. And you may not get that out of English translations, but that's what the word is in Greek, exodon, I think it's in the accusative there. And then we say, oh, well, what was his exodus? Well, Luke 9.51 says, from that point on, he set his jaw like flint to go to Jerusalem. And then you get a travel narrative where you're describing exactly what Christian liberty is, according to the confession. Delivery from Satan. So we have, you know, people who are demon 
demon-possessed that are being liberated. You have delivery from sin, delivery from sickness, and all these miraculous healings. And all of it pointing forward and building to the climax of the crucifixion when Jesus will go through his ultimate exodus and deliver us through chaos safe and sound out on the other side when he declares it is finished and he becomes the wrath bearer on our behalf. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.